very glad that you guys are here tonight. I hope you've had a great week as um, we've just been a, a busy church. Everyone's all over the place, and that's all right. I hope you guys are having a good summer. I hope you guys are having fun with your family and with your friends, and uh, I hope that the Lord's giving you grace and joy in that whole process of just kind of being spread out and doing things in the summer. And so I'm happy to see you here. I got to take a little two-week break from teaching. We were gone on vacation for a little while. Um, But now we're going to be back for at least a few weeks talking about the Holy Spirit. Um, I think this is our fifth week. I think we started talking uh, on Pentecost, and we told the story of Pentecost. Uh, And then we looked at how, like, the Old Testament unfolds our understanding of who the Holy Spirit is. And then we looked at the book of Acts in particular, and how that uh, develops our understanding of the Holy Spirit. And now we're going to look at like kind of an overview of Paul specifically. His letters, we're not going to look at every single one of them, but we are going to look at multiple of them. And so I'm going to try to do it semi-quickly, but there's a lot, actually a lot to get through. Um, we've been kind of doing like this surface-y skim of what's called biblical theology regarding the Holy Spirit. Biblical theology is where we supposedly let the Bible kind of gradually or progressively inform our understanding of a topic as we read one book to the next and to the next, rather than systematic theology, which is where we like present everything that we know. We've already kind of like collated and indexed and categorized and synthesized all that the Bible has to say, and then we just kind of do an information dump. Here's everything about the Holy Spirit. We're not doing that. Uh, they lead to the same spot. We're not like getting at different sets of facts or truth here, but it's just a different road to get there. And I think both are helpful and necessary, specifically when it comes to the Holy Spirit. Um, I have like uh, questions, skepticisms, baggage, maybe some fear, um, and maybe you do too. And so I think it's helpful to not just jump out and say, here's the facts that I think would be helpful for us to think about or, or adjust, but rather, hey, do you want to read the Bible with me? We're going to look at some stuff together and see what you think. Um, Rather than me punching you in the face with my thoughts, maybe the Bible gets to do that. How about that? Um, So I'm going to take 60 seconds to overview what we have done so far. And it's going to be on the screen so you can um, see that I'm not lying, that there are references to back these things up. Um, The Spirit of God, uh, this is the Old Testament, or Ruach Elohim is like an empowering, energizing wind or breath. That's what ruach means. But it is also the actual very person and presence of God. The Spirit of God is active in creation. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God kind of temporarily or situationally fills some people for specific tasks. Um, Later in the Old Testament, the prophets promised that someone called Messiah would be filled with the Spirit of the Lord for his role in his service to Yahweh. And finally, the prophets promised that God's people someday would be filled with the Spirit and that this would empower them to be faithful to God. Again, we're doing kind of big sweeping overview. Um, In the Gospels, um, the Holy Spirit fills Jesus at his baptism so that he can bring healing and justice to those around him as Messiah. Um, And also, Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit to his disciples when he ascended bullet points. And then in the book of Acts, we found that the Holy Spirit fills, or to use the language of John and Jesus, the Holy Spirit fills or baptizes every single person who calls on the name of Jesus. The Holy Spirit's filling of all these believers radically empowers them to accomplish Jesus's mission that he gave them at the beginning of Acts to go and make disciples. 
And finally, the Holy Spirit is very active in like the goings on of the church, directing and leading them very specifically on their, in their mission that Jesus sent them on. So I wanna point out a few things so far just from that. I mentioned that this is like a kind of a surface skim of biblical theology. As I was reading through those lists, it's actually fairly thorough. Um, like these are summaries and I'm like synthesizing it, but it actually I think captures what Genesis through Acts teaches about the Holy Spirit. It's some, somewhat comprehensive. Um, second, you might notice we've covered most of the Bible. Like if you grab the Bible in front of you and hold Genesis through Acts, that is most of your Bible. There's not a lot left. Which leads me to the third thing. Strangely, it's what we haven't covered yet that are usually the most confusing, maybe divisive sections of the Bible with respect to the Holy Spirit. Which makes sense, but it also makes me sad. Um, like what we learn about the Spirit in Paul's letter in particular, it's a small portion of the Bible. They're a small portion of all that the Bible has to say about the Holy Spirit, but they um, pack a punch, specifically in 1 Corinthians. There's some really great, crazy, and wild and awesome stuff in there that we're gonna go over. Um, in other words, the church isn't really divided over what, we've, what I've just read, Genesis through Acts, and even Genesis through like everything except 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. There's a great amount of agreement and consensus um, on what we've shared so far. Um, but there is definitely some confusion and some things that are worth talking about with, uh, that Paul teaches. So here's kind of how I'm thinking about it. In the book of Acts, the Spirit fills every believer, empowers them to accomplish the mission that Jesus gave them. The Spirit himself directs these individuals in the church. And there's this guy, Paul. He joins this early church as what he calls um, an untimely born apostle. Um, he says that in reference to when Jesus appeared to him as he was like ravaging the church with his hatred towards Christianity. And Jesus um, miraculously appears to him and saves him and calls him to do what Paul was about to do, which is plant churches. And he's commissioned by Jesus himself to go do that. So Paul goes out after some time into all these non-Jewish places and he preaches the gospel and he plants churches. And while he's on these multiple missionary journeys when he is spending time in prison, he's writing letters to these churches that he planted. He's got messengers and letters coming to him and going away from him so that he's basically, they're just kind of filling him in on how all these churches are going. And it's through these letters actually that we have a window into the Holy Spirit's explosion in the early church. And it proves the point to the book of Acts actually that the Holy Spirit did indeed fill every single believer in all of these churches, all of these disciples. But it was for them, as it still is for us today, um, messy sometimes. And so Paul in these letters is addressing how the Holy Spirit comes to bear on whatever issues those churches were facing. He's not teaching about the spirit like in a vacuum, like he's not teaching a theology class on the spirit and says in the syllabus, now here's our time to talk about the spirit. He's just talking about their life as a church and the things that they're going through. And it just so happens that the spirit has something to do with all of those things. They, the, his teaching on the spirit um, matters for what they are going through. And I think it's important to remember that. And so we're looking into these windows that we have of these early churches Paul's writing to and that is where we're gonna learn about the Holy Spirit. Before we begin going through some books, 
I want to cite a source that I'm basically using throughout. I have been using it throughout the whole series, um, and it's been very helpful um, for me as I've been studying this. Um, so if I say something that you're like, wow, that's interesting, that's good, it's probably from this book. Um, it's called The Holy Spirit. It's a really creative title by Greg Allison and Andres Kostenberger. Um, they start with like a biblical theology of the Holy Spirit, and then they move into systematic theology. If you feel like doing some extra studying, it's a great book. You should go for it. But again, I'm more or less using like their research and even like the structure of how they've outlined the biblical theology as we've been moving through it. So it's been helpful for me. Um, we are not going to look at Colossians, Philippians, Philemon, the letters to Timothy, or Titus. I know I said we're doing Paul. That's a lot of Paul's letters. Um, or really 2 Corinthians. Um, because they say little about the Holy Spirit. They don't say nothing. Um, and the things that they do say, they're great. They're awesome verses. They're all inspired by the Lord. They're good. You could probably find seven of them and be like, what about this one? This is great. I'll be like, you're right. We're just not talking about it now. Um, we are going over the other ones. And we're going to spend more time on Romans and Corinthians. And even in Corinthians, we're probably going to do a whole separate teaching about 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. So if we finish that section, you're like, why didn't you like get into that? We will. So we're going to start with Galatians. If you have your Bible, you can open up there. Um, this is one of the letters Paul wrote to a group of churches in a region called Galatia. We don't know how many churches he planned for the letter to be sent to, but apparently there was a theme among these churches. They were having trouble understanding how they were included into God's family. So there were people in these churches who had converted to the way of Jesus from Judaism, and there were people around them that had decided to follow Jesus that were not Jewish at all, but came from the pagan religions of the world around them. And apparently there were people in this region kind of infecting these churches with an idea that if you really want to follow Jesus, if you really want to do it right, you have to follow the laws of the Old Testament, including being circumcised. They viewed this, like ancient Israel did, as a definitive physical marker between them and the wicked nations around them. And so in the region of Galatia, these churches were struggling. Paul was fairly frustrated that this was an issue for them because they seemed to forget about the gospel. Um, they forgot how they were brought into relationship with God. And it's to this issue that Paul teaches them and us about the Holy Spirit. So we're gonna read a, a chunk, actually, Galatians chapter three. We're going to read verses 1 through 14. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain if it really was in vain? So again, I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? Those are all rhetorical questions, at least the first parts of them. The answers are no, he didn't do that. Um, so also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. 
Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that we might so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Long passage to say this, the whole point. They received the Spirit of God, which is the means by which any person can call God Father or be considered part of God's family. They received it by faith, not by following the laws of the Old Testament. In other words, the blessing given to Abraham that that was promised to all nations is given by faith, and that blessing... That blessing is the Spirit of God when the Spirit indwells in us and comes to us. And so the point we learned here that is actually gonna be repeated over and over again in all of Paul's letters in different ways is that all believers begin their lives as Christians by receiving the Holy Spirit. We know that from the book of Acts. It's not exactly new, but that is one of the most foundational points that Paul will teach through his letters is that that's how we begin our Christian lives is by receiving the Spirit. So the first point, you begin your life with Christ when you receive the Spirit, not by works, not by anything else. And the point of the rest of Galatians, we're gonna look at Galatians 5 next. Um, The rest of Galatians is that you can only continue your life with Jesus through the Spirit. Look at verse 16 in chapter five. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So in this section we learn it's not uh, the law, but it's actually the Holy Spirit who gives us the ability to not give in to our flesh, to actually say no to the things we do not want to do. The only reason we can do that is with the Spirit in us. And so Paul encourages them, Walk by the Spirit, live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. I kind of think that this imagery is actually, like the language is similar to Deuteronomy 6 when Paul's telling them to have the law like always on their mind. Think about it when you're sitting down, when you're lying down, when you're walking by the way with your family. Um, I kind of think that's the idea here, what Paul is referring to, that we would walk with, keep in stride with, live life in constant relationship with and dependence on the Holy Spirit to be the thing that helps us actually follow Jesus and obey. That's Galatians. Let's look at Thessalonians. This will be quick. We're gonna look at 1 Thessalonians chapter one, verses four through six. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God that he has chosen you. 
because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. So Paul's talking about how this church in Thessalonica heard the gospel from him, maybe some other people, co-laborers with him, and he's so confident that the gospel took root in them um, because it was received in really bad circumstances. He said they welcomed the message, his message, in the midst of severe suffering, and they did this because of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came in power when the gospel came to them. It wasn't because Paul was using eloquent, eloquent, fancy words. It wasn't because his life was like amazing and grand and fancy. It was the power of the Spirit in spite of Paul's suffering and maybe their church's suffering too. And so this is like a sort of zoomed in look at what we saw in Acts, that the Holy Spirit empowered the disciples and the apostles to bring the message of Jesus to the world. This is it in action right here in this church. Later in the letter in 2 Thessalonians, um, Paul, kind of similar to Galatians, kind of goes back, tells them that it's the work of the Holy Spirit that enables their sanctification. The only way that we become more like Jesus is through the Holy Spirit in us. And then finally, at the end of the first letter, back to 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter five, um, he's closing with some seemingly random kind of thoughts at the end of his letter. Tells them to be good to each other, he tells them to pray all the time, to rejoice, to give thanks, And then he says this, do not quench the spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all, hold on to what is good, reject every kind of evil. So I think that he's saying uh, the spirit of God may be at work in your church through prophetic words from one another. Some may be good, some may not be, but you need to test and examine all of them. My guess is that uh, a few bad prophecies <laughs> caused the Thessalonians to throw the baby out with the bathwater, which is a terrible analogy, and they uh, were treating prophecy with, uh, in their church with contempt. They did not like it, and in so doing, says Paul, they were quenching, they were stifling the work of the Spirit in their church. Now that bit is new. Everything that we've seen so far in Galatians and Ephesians, it kind of tracks with and fits back into what we've seen in the Old Testament, in the Gospel, and in the book of Acts. But this window that we're looking into at this church in Thessalonica, Paul lets slip that the Spirit is at work through people in this church through the gift of prophecy. And to think poorly of these prophecies is to actually hinder the work of the Spirit, says Paul. Let's go to Ephesians. It's probably the most like readily theological letter, like you read through it and just kind of has like a weight to it. Um, And it has a lot to say about the spirit, but again, its concepts are familiar to us by now. Um, The authors of that book I'm reading called The Holy Spirit um, categorize Ephesians references to the Holy Spirit as eschatological, salvation historical and ecclesiological. They have to do with the end times, they have to do with like how does God save people throughout history and they have to do with the church. 
So the first one, Ephesians 1.13 says that believers are sealed with the Holy Spirit as a sort of down payment or deposit to be fully and finally redeemed in the age to come. So that's like the eschatological reference of what the Spirit does for us in the future. Ephesians 2, 18, 20, and, and 22 say that the Jews and Gentiles have access to the Father by the Spirit and are together being built up into one body. This is like, if you're reading Ephesians, this is the mystery that Paul talks about over chapters two and three, that the two would become one body. Um, Ephesians 4, three through six is the section about church. Um, Paul shares that as the Spirit dwells in us, we should be living in unity and living in peace with the family of God because we all share the same spirit. We experience one and the same baptism in the spirit. We have one Lord Jesus. And then at the end of this section, Paul also mentions that the Holy Spirit can be grieved by disunity, by anger, bitterness, and fighting amongst a church family. Which makes me wonder uh, how the Holy Spirit might have felt about how Christians have treated each other in the last like three or four years, um, especially during the pandemic. And the last category in Ephesians shows that the Spirit guides our prayer and our understanding of Scripture. In Ephesians 1.17, Paul prays that the church would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation. I think means he's praying that the Spirit would impart wisdom so that we would understand the revelation in Scripture and revelation from God. Paul calls the Scriptures the sword of the Spirit. In other words, the words of God for the church are what the Spirit can use like offensively to drive back um, its enemies. So Ephesians, very beautiful and rich um, understanding of the spirit. Let's look at two more, Romans and Corinthians. We're gonna look particularly at Romans eight because it basically has just like an an outburst of references to and a celebration of the work of the Spirit in a Christian. And there's only like four references before that. In Romans 1, 4, it says that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus um, and in doing so appointed him to be the Son of God. Uh, Romans 2, 29, kind of like in Galatians, shows that exterior signs like circumcision aren't the thing that prove you're in God's family. Um, it's the indwelling of the Spirit that makes our heart new. Romans 5, 5 says that God actually gives his love to us, like we experience it through the Spirit. Romans 7, 6, Paul tells us that we live what he calls in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old letter of the law. So now, I'm just gonna read as much as I can of Romans chapter eight. We're gonna start at the beginning. In case it's been a while since you've read it, it's one of the best. I don't know, we should just, we're gonna read it. It's gonna be great. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the flesh, on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's, God's laws, nor can it do so. 
Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. I just got so lost, people. Hold on. Talk amongst yourselves. What verse was I in? 14, thank you so much. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I'm gonna stop reading there. Um, the authors of this book, the Holy Spirit I'm reading, summarized like in really helpful sentences uh, all the things that Romans 8 teaches us about the Spirit, and we're gonna look at them. So the first thing, possession of the Spirit is essential for being a Christian. The requirements of the law are met by those who walk in the spirit, but they must still put to death by the spirit the deeds of the flesh. Life in the spirit is a life of freedom, righteousness, life, and peace. The same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead will also bring believers' mortal bodies to life. The spirit conveys the present and future reality of adoption and sonship. And finally, the, the Spirit intercedes for believers in keeping with God's will. To me, Romans 8 is the ultimate summary. Like if you, had one, if you could only have one passage to know what does the Spirit do in the church and in Christians and for Jesus' followers, I would want this one chapter. It is the manual for how, what he does in the life of a Jesus follower. There's just no way to like downplay how epic that chapter is. The reason that you are a Christian, the reason that you don't have to follow the laws of the Old Testament, the reason that you can and must put to death the deeds of the flesh, the way that you can have and experience freedom and righteousness and peace and life the reason that you will be raised to a new physical life, the reason that you can call God Father now, the reason that you will be able to call God Father in the age to come is because of the Holy Spirit. It's beautiful. You guys doing okay? It's a little bit warm, isn't it? <laughs> Last letter to the Corinthians. Uh, the church in Corinth was a very divided church divided over which apostles were the best, divided over how to deal with sin in their church, divided over how the Spirit shows himself in their midst, in their gathering, and how this affects their unity and their harmony as a local church. 
And so the references to the Spirit in the beginning have to, have to do with Paul like seeming like he's less important or less impressive than the other apostle named Paulos. Paul defends himself by saying, I think in 1 Corinthians 2.4, he wasn't trying to use words, persuasive words of wisdom, but actually just speaking in the power of the Spirit. He, he goes on in that same chapter to say um, what he has been teaching, um, that all of it is spiritual and that if you're gonna understand something spiritual, you have to have the Spirit of God in you to help you understand these spiritual realities. In chapter six, Paul develops our understanding of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost coming into all the believers. And he says that, um, he basically calls our bodies temples of the Holy Spirit, which is new, sort of new imagery. Um, and this is shared in the context of telling the church that they don't get to do, we don't get to do whatever we want with our bodies because they actually belong to God. In other words, every part of ourselves needs to be under the lordship of Jesus, especially and in including our physical bodies because God dwells in us. And then the next references to the spirit and his work, we get to chapters 12 through 14. These are for sure the most controversial sections of the New Testament that have to do with the Holy Spirit. I think everything we've said so far about the Holy Spirit, at least I think, is really generally agreed upon. There's a lot of consensus, maybe even among, like not just amongst different denominations, but like I think across Catholic, Protestant, maybe some traditional Orthodox sections of Christendom, a lot of agreement in what we've shared so far. But in these chapters, Paul corrects and teaches them that the Holy Spirit has not only filled them, but given them particular gifts or manifestations of the Spirit. And the purpose of them is unity, harmony, and building each other up. It was supposed to be an encouragement, evidence of God's presence among them, something that helped them all follow Jesus. But they got really sideways. They were eager for these gifts, eager for what they call the manifestations of the Spirit. They began to value some of them over other ones. It was causing some people to have like inflated self-worth based on what gifts they have and others to feel worse about themselves. It was causing division and it was not building up their church. And so these chapters address that issue, chapters 12 through 14. I'm just gonna go through the references in 12 through 14 very quickly because we're gonna probably dedicate a whole teaching to this one. In 12.4, we read there are different gifts, but they come from the same spirit. In 12.7, the manifestation of the spirit is given to each person for the common good. Verse eight, the same spirit gives wisdom and knowledge. Verse nine, the same spirit, the one spirit gives faith and gifts of healing. Verse 11, one and the same spirit sovereignly distributes spiritual gifts to each. Verse 13, believers were baptized with one spirit into one body. Then it transitions to chapter 13 where Paul's been saying, you guys are all sideways about these gifts. I just want you to love each other. And that's what chapter 13 is about. He's describing love. We use it in weddings. It's cute. It's fine. But it's about helping this church understand how important it is for them to love one another. And then he circles back in chapter 14. Verse 2 says, the person who speaks in tongues speaks mysteries in the spirit. And finally, he's kind of summarizing how they've been in verse 12. He says, you guys are zealous for manifestations of the spirit but he wants them to strive to excel in building others up. So the Spirit gives the gifts. He gives them for the good of the church. He gives them wisdom and knowledge, faith. He gives them the gifts of healings. He distributes gifts to every believer in his wisdom. We are all baptized or filled with the same Spirit at conversion, and so we form one body 
of Christ. When a person speaks in tongues, they're actually speaking in the spirit. And finally, Paul is okay. He actually encourages the church to desire these things, but he wants them to shift their priority to love and building up the church. These chapters, um, similar to that little section at the end of 1 Thessalonians, when he talks about not quenching the spirit, um, not um, despising prophecy, these chapters, when you think of like the whole of scripture that we've gone through, this kind of comes out of left field a little bit, at least in my mind. Everything that we've studied so far in Galatians and Ephesians and Romans, um, they kind of track with what we've read throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Gospel of Acts. There's a lot of repeat, there's explanation, there's kind of different ways and flavors of saying similar things. And then we get this window into the church in Corinth and Paul is in the weeds talking with them not just about the fact that the Spirit is in them, but what exactly does the Spirit do in you? And he brings up this topic of gifts from the Spirit and how they should operate in the church. So it's like in every other letter of Paul, he's dropping these like epic kind of sweeping truth statements about the Spirit's role in salvation and teaching believers and bringing Jews and Gentiles together, helping us obey Jesus. And then here in 12 through 14, he's so zoomed in and it's something that we haven't really talked about before, the gifts that the Spirit gives the church. So again, we're gonna do a separate teaching on this passage. It's so unique, it's so important. I bet all of us have, myself included, would really benefit from looking at it um, closely together and looking at it closely with a lot of humility, maybe even some excitement, I don't know. Um, but for now, whatever the gifts are, however they play out in this church or in other churches, um, Paul is clear that the, the goal, the point of them, uh, is that he's gifting, the, the Spirit is gifting the church to build itself up so that people would encourage each other. And so my spoiler alert for the next few weeks, whatever we end up talking about or saying here, that's what I want for our church, um, for our church to be built up and encouraged. And if we are missing out on something that the Spirit wants us to do that is actually gonna build us up and encourage one another, I would like to be a part of that. I'm convinced that the Holy Spirit wants to use um, each of us to do that for one another, to uh, use the gift that he's given us to build each other up. <sighs> okay, we did it, guys. We got through Paul. Whew. We have covered almost the whole Bible. Um, we have not looked at Peter, Hebrews, James, 1, 2, 3, John, Jude, or Revelation. I'm not sure to what extent we're gonna look or how deeply we're gonna look at those, um, but I have looked through all the references in them. There's not a lot left in our like kind of development of our understanding of the Spirit. Um, there's some strange stuff in Hebrews. We'll probably look at that because it's really interesting. Um, but there's not like a, a lot more information for us to get through. We've kind of covered what the Bible would teach us about the Holy Spirit. And now uh, I'm hoping that we might kind of turn a corner. I'm hoping it'll be a lot less like information dump type sermons and more reflection on how this comes to bear on our lives as Jesus followers and our life here at Valley Church. So I'm hoping it turns into something that might change our lives <laughs> to put it lightly. Um, 
in their uh, synthesis of all this information, the authors of this book, the Holy Spirit, kind of categorize everything in this way. The Spirit mediates God's presence, imparts life, reveals truth, fosters holiness, supplies power, and affects unity. So just leave that up, for, up there for a little bit and just look at each of those six things. Just take a minute. When I think about my life as a Jesus follower, I'd say that those six things are the things that I most desperately need. God's presence to be alive in myself as a person, alive to Jesus and to myself, to have, to have truth revealed to me, to understand what's true and right and good, to become more holy, to be supplied with the power to do what God wants me to do in my life, to be who he wants me to be, and then to be united and living in harmony with you guys, my brothers and sisters in Christ. So when I feel like God isn't present, when I feel dead inside, or when I'm confused or deceived, when I'm stuck in sin, when I feel weak or afraid, or when I'm at odds with someone in my life or in our church, it is the person and the work of the Holy Spirit that I need. And I think there's value in naming that and clarifying that, what exactly the Spirit does in us. There's a saying that I really like. I'm 99% sure that Andy Stanley said it, but I don't know. I couldn't find it today when I Googled it. I definitely know the quote. If you don't know why it's working, when it's working, you won't be able to fix it when it's broken. Andy Stanley? The idea is that it can be really helpful to understand things at a deep level, to know exactly what the Spirit of God does for us, so that when we feel like something's off, we can say like, Spirit, you, you promise to do this. I know that this is your role. This is how you work in the Trinity. This is, this is your job description. Help me out here. Um, I think that that can be helpful. We can be worshipful and grateful when the Spirit is at work in those areas. We can call it like it is and say, that's, that's you, Holy Spirit, doing that in my life. When you receive boldness to share Jesus with someone, when you receive the fruit of the Spirit in humility and patience to bear with someone who you are in conflict with and love and forgive them, that's not because you're like a great person. You probably are, but that's probably the Spirit of God working in you. And when that feels impossibly hard, like I can't bear this anymore, I'm so hurt, betrayed, I'm so tired of this person, it's the Spirit that's gonna come and help. If I'm feeling distant from God, when I feel like a shell of a human, when I'm struggling to find or understand truth, when it feels like I'm giving in to my flesh on repeat and sinning, when I'm afraid or apathetic about the work that God might want to do in the world through me, when I'm in conflict with someone, what if there was power in asking the one who has promised to help? When we see in Acts that the Holy Spirit directed the early church and empowered them, 
That line is repeated throughout the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit led Philip or led Paul or led someone else to go do this thing. What if we, as a church, prayed for the Spirit to direct our church and our ministry? If it didn't come to you in the form of like a bullet-pointed list of all the things that I want to accomplish in a year, but we prayed and the Spirit spoke to us and guided us. What if we trusted him to, like he did for the church in Acts, to speak to us and direct us and guide us? I feel a little bit right now like the Corinthians, not the divided and the angry bit, but eager for the manifestation and the work of the Spirit in our church that we might be encouraged and built up. And I wonder if you might feel that way too. Would you like to see the Spirit of God work in your life and in our, in our midst? Let's ask and, and pray. Holy Spirit, we, um, in view of all these letters that Paul wrote to the churches, acknowledge just the foundation that we're here, we are in your family because, Spirit, you made it possible. It's by you, through you, that we can call God Father, that we have been saved, that we were washed, regenerated, given a new heart, and so we just say thank you for the work that you have done in our salvation. We thank you for the promise that you will ultimately save and redeem us in the age to come. And we also know that you are probably <laughs> eager to work through us. And that maybe, starting with me, maybe, maybe we're too distracted or busy or apathetic to listen and to ask what do you have for us, Spirit? So would you change me as a man, as a pastor, change us as a church to be oriented to listen to you and to move when you speak? We pray these things through the Spirit in the name of Jesus. Amen.